in the morning when you need the news that matters most. We have a constitutional right to publish this story. We are the fourth estate and we will hold the powerful accountable. You need the front page. Wait, what's the fourth estate? Us, the press. And everyone knows that? On the press box. Because I feel like people always say the fourth estate, but they don't actually know what it means. I think everybody knows what it means. I thought the fourth estate was time. That's the fourth dimension. I thought the fourth estate was Georgia. With Graney and Bischoff. No, not state, a state. You thought I was saying we're the state of Georgia? Roger Goodell said yesterday that there is no timetable for a disciplinary decision on Deshaun Watson. Goodell said, we will seek to get to the bottom of the facts. Does anybody believe the NFL is going to get to the bottom of the facts with Deshaun Watson? <laughs> well, maybe they'll actually call some of the women. Uh, <laughs> unlike the, unlike the uh, Cleveland Browns, maybe they'll actually have some of the women come in and explain to them what they say happened with Deshaun Watson. So uh, I would hope they would. If you're getting to the bottom of the facts, don't you have to talk to the people who are bringing across the civil suits? You would think so. You'd think that would You'd be think a, so. one way to go about it. Um, I, I would say right now the NFL, like they do have the benefit of time. They've got a few months before they actually have to make any sort of decision. So I imagine they'll let uh, whether there's any more criminal issue or criminal cases against Deshaun Watson or if it's just the civil they'll let that play out as much as they can and then make a decision in I don't know maybe August or something right before the season starts uh, right in the preseason I guess uh, as to whether or not they suspend Deshaun Watson but I think everybody's operating under the assumption they are going to suspend Deshaun Watson. I guess yeah. it's just a matter of, of how long and what the NFL actually, if they get to the bottom of the facts or what facts they find here. But I think it's pretty widely held assumption he is going to get suspended at some point. Well, and I don't think, I mean, I'm not sure, I didn't hear the whole quote, but I don't think he denied that. He just said we're going to get to the bottom of the facts. I don't think he yeah. denied that there's not a suspension coming. Yeah, and and granted i don't think you can come out and say yes we're going to suspend this guy just not yet right but that's kind of the sense you get from the entire situation and listen as far as the the nfl goes at this point i don't have a to me there's no issue with them not suspending him right now like it, you're perfectly fine waiting you got lucky last year because the texans were willing to just pay him and sit him on the sideline for the entirety of the year but yeah you can you can wait until august now if we get into august and there's still waiting on the facts or whatever they're doing then now you might have a bit of an issue because the season's around the corner but right march april yeah you can you can sit back and wait that's a great great question the nfl passed a new overtime rule both teams will be guaranteed an offensive possession in overtime but only for the postseason why not why not add this oh, for the regular season why do these guys overthink the room just put the rule in what, why, it, it, to me, it makes no sense not to do it. Just, just say this is our overtime rule now. You know, college has an overtime rule. Leagues have overtime rules. Just say this is what it is. Um, I'm not going to argue after watching Buffalo, Kansas City, with any rule that allows both teams to have possession just because I want to see more games like that. Uh, but I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to the question of why not the regular season as well. So let me ask you this, uh, because I think at some point it will end up in the regular season. But for now... You, in the, We get to playoff game, you go to overtime. First team goes down, scores a touchdown, kicks the extra point. Oh, I know the, where you're going. Second team gets the ball, goes down, and scores a touchdown. 
do you go for two to win the game? I think we would. I think conservative NFL coaches most often would not. But I, I think I understand. I think it would be great if they did. But I think these guys are so uh, conservative sometimes. They'd say, let's just extend it and try to get the stop. So the the logic behind going for two is simply that after each team gets one possession, it's sudden death. So if you score right. the Even second score, touchdown, yeah. kick an yeah. extra point, and then kick off, they just if they get a field goal, they win the game. Right, so right. the logic is go for two and win the game with your offense and don't worry about having to get a stop. Now, this is where the other part comes into play because if you win the coin toss in overtime, are you taking the ball or are you kicking off? Uh, great question because I want I might want to know what I have to do. Right. Um, it's, it's the college logic where you yeah. go second because, hey, yes. they kicked a field goal, so if I go score a touchdown – I win the game or, right. oh, they scored a touchdown. I've got to score a touchdown, right? Or if they punt it, I just need a field goal. Right. So, you know, if you go second, but I think, I think I'm still taking the ball first because if we both score the same amount of points, I get the ball back in a sudden death scenario. And I think that's more valuable than knowing what you need to do because, and, and even if, even if we don't score, if we both punt, I get the ball a, th a second time right. before you get the ball a second time, and it's sudden death. So I, I still think it's going to be more valuable to take the ball first just because if you guys match points on your first drive, now it's sudden death, and I get the ball if I went first. Whereas if I go second, yes, it's a little bit easier because I know what I need to do, but if I fail and don't score more than you on my second drive, then now I've got to play defense in a sudden death scenario, and nobody wants to do that. Next question. Lamar Jackson um, may not sign an extension with the Ravens this offseason. Ravens owner Steve Biscotti said yesterday, unless he has a change of heart, calls Eric and says, I'm ready. It's But it's like Eric can't keep calling him and say, hey, Lamar, you really need to get in here and get this thing done. Lamar Jackson has one more season <laughs> on his rookie deal. And apparently they're not exactly thrilled. Lamar Jackson did come out and say there's a false narrative that he doesn't want to play in Baltimore. So whatever the hell that means. Uh, how much uh, should the Ravens pay Lamar Jackson? Or should they just be paying him at the top end of the quarterback market? I think they should be paying him at the top end. I just want to know uh, why Eric can't get this done. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's wrong with Eric? Uh, he's not very I persuasive. So, Biscotti also said yesterday that he kind of complained about the Deshaun Watson fully guaranteed deal and said that that resets oh. the quarterback market. Can you imagine that? I'm I'm curious if that's where a potential hangup comes now, where Lamar Jackson looks around and says, listen, this Deshaun Watson guy got a fully guaranteed deal, and you're not going to give me a fully guaranteed right. deal? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You're giving me this whole thing is going to be fully guaranteed. So, I... I wonder if that becomes a hang up here for not maybe not just Lamar Jackson. That might well now. Are we talking about that with Derek Carr? Yeah, I mean yeah, if you're Derek Carr, you're if you're Derek Carr, you might walk in and say, "Listen, I know you're not going to pay me as much as Deshaun Watson, but you're going to guarantee this whole thing. Like I'm getting 100 percent guaranteed." So I'm yeah. I'm curious, like how it's a it's a team complaining about a player getting a good contract, which is always going to happen, but. It is something that's interesting, whereas any quarterback that's looking for a new deal now, you probably go in and say, hey, that guy got fully guaranteed, so uh, you're going to give that to me too, right? 
How pissed are people at the Browns? Oh, I mean, just I mean, in general, people are mad at him for going and getting Deshaun Watson. But yes, if you're just looking at from like a contract market standpoint, yeah, you're looking around saying, what the hell did they do that for? Now we have to do that. Now our quarterback has a comparable salary or comparable contract to walk in and say, this guy got it. Yeah, I wouldn't be very happy with him either. Next question. Josina Anderson tweeted this yesterday. The Browns currently plan a patient approach with Baker Mayfield situation. It's also entirely possible they enter the regular season with Mayfield still on the roster and a pos- and in a position to suit up pending Deshaun Watson's playing status. Give me a give me like a percentage here. What's the percentage chance that Baker Mayfield is on the Browns roster for week 1? I'll say 75%. That is very high. Wow. It's okay. very high because I don't know at this point if he hasn't been gone yet what the market is for him and also if the Browns, I don't know if they have intel or inside, you know, information. If they think Deshaun Watson's out for eight or even more games, then do they think they're going to be better than, you know, they, can they do better than Baker Mayfield at this point? It makes a lot of sense for the Browns to keep Baker Mayfield from that standpoint. Basically, their their quarterback is probably going to miss the first however many games of the season, and Baker Mayfield would be a fine replacement for those first few weeks of the season. My main holdup on on why Baker Mayfield would still be in Cleveland is can he force his way out? Can he be such a like malcontent? Can he be such a distraction? Because he doesn't want to be there because he's not going to be the starter at the end of the season. Can he force his way out? Can he be such a negative that they are like, all right, we just got to release this guy because this is not going right. to work. And I have to imagine that's a possibility because if you're Baker Mayfield, I mean – do you want to start six games for a team that's trying to replace that already did replace you and is going to replace you as soon as Deshaun Watson's not suspended? Like I can understand where he's coming from, from this point, but I, I, I think I'd put it more than 50%. I think I'm with you on the maybe 75% that he's still there just because from the team standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to keep the guy around. Yeah, man. You know, that's a great question. All right. Senegal beat Egypt yesterday to go to the World Cup. They played a two-legged tie. This was the second game of that. And Senegal won to knock Egypt out and go to the World Cup. Senegal won on penalties. But that's not the important part here. The important part, and if you click on that tweet in the rundown and look at the video here, Senegal fans were shining laser pointers at the Egyptian players for the entirety of the game. And I'm not talking about Look at this. one or two guys had a laser pointer. This was like 40 or 50 guys had laser pointers from all angles of the stadium and just obliterating the Egyptian players with these laser pointers for the entire game. Unbelievable that this actually happened for an entire soccer game. Is this allowed? I guess it's allowed to happen. I mean, no, it's not supposed to be allowed to happen. <laughs> it's not. But I I don't know why, but the referees didn't deem it a big enough deal to stop the game and try to make it go away. They just said, play on, play through it, and eventually the Egyptians had to. I mean, they, they, that was what the referees decided. But it is, like, to, and also, it's unbelievable, the laser pointers, how many of them. Because, again, it was not one or two. It is like 40 or 50 guys. Oh, no, he's, he's being covered in these green yeah, dots. Yeah, and, and it was dots. every side of the field. If they showed the Egyptian bench, their coaches and players on the bench were getting it. 
The goalie on one side was getting it when they went to the other end for the second half, still getting it. Like, it was unreal how many laser pointers were being shown on the Egyptian players in this game. And then they lost in a penalty shootout. And I, I didn't actually... say, were they doing this during penalties? The, well, they, yeah, they did the entire game. And yeah, during penalties, oh, especially. Goodness. Like, and I, oh. again... I didn't I didn't go and look up any quotes from the Egyptian players to see how much they complained about it afterwards. I imagine they did, but I also have to imagine that played a big role in why they lost. I mean, you lose a penalty shootout and they were terrible too. They missed 3 of the 4 shots they took. I have to imagine that played a big part in it because My hello, goodness. it's a laser pointer right in yeah. your face. It's not ideal. So, yeah, that that happened yesterday. Literally like one of the biggest games those two countries have ever played. And we're talking about a laser pointer being a controversy because the guys had one shining on Mo Salah as he's taking a penalty. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into some baseball because they're trying to crack down on pitchers cheating. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box with Graney and Bischoff. Is Tyler muted? Yep, Tyler is muted. Where is this kid? I'm here. Oh, Sorry. I do it. I blew it. I'm here. I'm back. How are you guys? Not muted. Okay. I was. Now I'm not. <laughs> All right. Here's some baseball for you as I turn my mic on here. Major League Baseball is apparently going to crack down on pitchers using foreign substances. Um, if you remember, this was a big talking point last year where they started to crack down midway through the season on players using foreign substances to get a better grip on the baseball and therefore throw better pitches. Apparently, baseball thinks that players found a new way to cheat and use sticky stuff and not get caught. If you remember last year, guys would walk off the mound and umpires would come over. They'd look at their glove. They'd look at their hat. They'd make them turn their belt inside out to see if they had any foreign substances on them. Baseball thinks they found another way to get foreign substances onto the field. And so this year, they're just going to check the pitcher's hands. And if the pitcher has anything on his hand, he's out of the game. Um, the Dodgers are the, obviously the biggest cheaters in the history of the of sport course. because they're yeah, the ones that had the highest spin rate. And then all of a sudden, yeah. it went away when the sticky stuff uh, enforcement came. But what's interesting is people that were tracking um, the spin of the baseball which is the big uh, indicator of if you're using sticky stuff or not, there was a drastic drop-off when they announced they were going to start enforcing this ban. And then as the season went along, it slowly started to creep back up to normal, which is why baseball thinks pitchers found a way to keep cheating anyway. So that's why the Dodgers uh, didn't win the NL West. I mean, they, they weren't ones to, to cheat late in the season. I'm very upset at this. Uh... I'm, I'm not happy at all. I think it's because Max Scherzer's arm fell apart. I think that, yeah, was, well, that, that has was something to do with it, too. Maybe a bigger issue than uh, not figuring out a way to All cheat right. again. But, uh, yeah, it sounds like they All found right. a way to cheat again. That's fine. Check all the hands. If you're, if you're doing it to everyone, I've got no problem with it. I think they're also <laughs> going to be checking the catcher's hands. Uh, yeah, so they can, they, the they can check any player on the field. Like, if they think that, oh, the third baseman has it on his glove and he came in to talk to the pitcher before the inning started and gave him a glob of crap or whatever. Like, yeah, they can check anybody on the field they want. And if they find something, they'll eject the pitcher and that as well. So they don't want whatever. The second baseman being the conduit for the sticky stuff, which is great. I want to see that more than anything. Um, so 
sticky stuff could be enforced here and people getting uh, ejected or suspended again. However, I am curious here, Major League Baseball or MLB.com, they posted their top 10 rotations in baseball, Ed. How confident are you in the Dodgers rotation? Because they came in at number seven. I'm not confident at all. You know me. Um, I'm really only confident in the top guy, Walker Buehler. I think Julio Ramirez takes a, a step back after the year he had last year. Uh, Clayton Kershaw, you know my feelings. Second favorite player of all time. I think the kid is uh, past the prime. Gonsolin giving up four runs in, in, in two innings yesterday. He's a bum. And then uh, and then Haney as a fifth guy. I'm not confident. So, uh, you know, third place maybe in the West. I'm, I'm you know, this this is a third place. This is a third place uh, pitching staff. Wow. Look at you. Yeah, oh, wait, do you like any of them? Walker Bueller? Is that Oh, it? Walker Bueller. Yeah, Walker okay. Bueller, the ace. Okay. I like the ace. So there's one good like pitcher. So are you, one, we have one. one good pitcher. Are yeah. you saying one, one of pitcher. the one of the best lineups in MOB history isn't enough to power this team through their pitching performances? Listen, Danny. <laughs> you're gonna you're you're, you're gonna <laughs> learn stuff as you do more stuff on this show. That they could have the greatest team ever, and you can ask Tyler how upset and depressed I get each night. Each night they lose, so believe me, uh, I I know it's a good lineup, but I'm already I'm already counting the losses up from this pitching staff. They're gonna win eight to three, and he's gonna be mad that Tony Gonsolin gave up three runs in yeah. six innings, and he's be like, ah, oh. you gave up four earned runs in two innings yesterday. What's oh with this God. guy? Stretch oh, yourself man. out. Let's go. <laughs> Stretch yourself out. Let's go. Come on, Let's get this done. <laughs> It's spring training yet. You've been in camp for how many weeks? Let's go. Not so, oh, did you see, by the way, did you see sidebar here? Did you see um, the story where Cody Bellinger is the happiest strikeout king in spring training? Oh, no. Is he, he's happy when he strikes out? Oh, not when he strikes out, but they said he's got like the, he, he's happy and he's bouncing around like, you know, smiling and laughing, which just drove me nuts <laughs> that this is what this guy's doing. Is he, he struck out two more times yesterday. <laughs> Got two more times. I, it's. I'm sorry. And you had the numbers the other day. I mean, he was an MVP a couple years ago. Like, how do you lose it this fast? And here's the thing: not even making contact. That, that's the weird thing. Like, he doesn't even make contact to get outs anymore. How do you lose it that fast? <laughs> I, I don't understand. It. I don't understand. It. That was my sidebar. I don't. I don't get this guy. Here's here's the uh, Sports Illustrated headline: Spring Training Strikeout King Cody Bellinger is as optimistic as ever. Think of, the, think about that. What in the world does this guy have opti- reason to be optimistic about? <laughs> that he's a good center fielder. That he could I set mean, a record for strikeouts in the preseason. I mean, he, well, he's on. If he hasn't already, he's on pace. There's no question about that. He's on pace to do it. Uh, here's a quote from him. I'm just getting my punchies out of the way in March. Are we in March? Oh. So they don't happen in the season. It's pretty smart oh. if you think about it that way. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is what we're left for in center field. Oh. Ed, what set yeah. you off more, that quote that he just read or the fact that he's striking out left and right? Um, I mean, probably the fact he's striking out every time up. He can say what he wants, but, you know, he sounds – kind of foolish there but the fact that he is striking out every time he's at bat is astonishing to me you can struggle and hit a lot of ground balls or you know pop-ups and not catch up the fastballs and make outs the other way he's swinging through straight fastballs tyler and i talked about this uh, the other day he's swinging through straight fastballs he can't catch up to a major league fastball it's 
it's amazing he was the MVP a couple of years back. Absolutely amazing, and he's falling off like this. <laughs> it just is. It's cra- it's crazy. Never seen anything like it with this guy. It's almost like he was cheating and was stealing signs, and then yeah. once he stopped stealing signs, he can't hit anymore. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't know any better, I would see, I would think the Dodgers were one of the biggest cheaters in the sport of baseball. I mean, did they used to pound drums for him, and now they don't anymore? I don't think I, so. I don't know what they're I don't know what they're doing with him. <laughs> Would you say if he if he continues this? Would you send him? Would you start him in AAA? Would you send him down? Well, he doesn't have any options, does he? He'd have to like you'd have to put him through waivers, right? Well, who's picking up this guy? I I'd pick the guy up. If Cody Bellinger goes on waivers, I'm picking him up. I'm like, yeah, the Dodgers suck, but we we'll cheat for you. We got it figured out over here. Come on, (laughs) we'll let you know what pitch is coming. You'll be great again. Yeah, He'd go to the Astros. Go to the Astros and become the MVP. Right, that'd be great. I'd be like, absolutely, that'd be phenomenal. So, I mean, yeah, there's no way you actually can. But like we no. we talked about it earlier. If if we get into like June, July, and the guy's hitting 170, you got to bench him. Like you can't. Oh my god, I mean, do you get that? Do you get that far into it? Like, yeah, I mean, great. Every time up. The Dodgers lineup is going to be ridiculous. So if they've got one guy who sucks, they're still going to probably be leading the league in runs scored. But if you get there, like if that's too, like last year, you kind of be like, oh, it's a fluke season and he's going to break out of it eventually, even though he never really did. I guess he came on a little bit at the end of last season, but like he came on in the playoffs a little. But if you get into, if you're into June and July and again, he's below 200. Yeah. You, I, you absolutely have to at least bench the guy like for probably an extended period of time and then say, okay, we're going to bring him back. But I don't, I don't know if you can actually send him to the minors simply because somebody else would claim him if he's got to go through waivers because, again, the guy was a former MVP. Somebody's going to be like, we'll figure that out. We'll fix that. No problem. So, God, I look forward to this. It's going to be so great. God, Cody Bellinger sucking is, is the funniest part about the Dodgers. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's amazing. It's incredible. that Between that and your now hatred of Tony Gonsolin giving up three runs or whatever it is, this is going to be a great season as the Dodgers win 115 games. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what who, happens. Who are you going to be mad at in the bullpen this year? That's going to be tough because uh, you know who is gone. So I'm going to have to – probably Gratterall. Probably that lunatic. Oh, but he's great. Oh, no, I love that guy. 105. I'll, I'll be mad at him trying to throw 105, and then guys will catch up to it and hit bombs. Well, not Cody Bellinger, but I. Gratterall's not one with much movement. He just throws as hard as he can. That doesn't often that doesn't happen or work in the major leagues. Nah, he'll be fine. He's going to be your best pitcher this year. You're going to complain about him the least. Bruce Dark Gratterall's incredible. So, all right, it's going to be a great season where the Dodgers win 115 games and Ed is still sounds like you're going to sound like the team is terrible and it's like, oh my god, they can't do anything. Meanwhile, they'll be winning the West by like 15 games in June. Because the Padres are going to be injured and the Giants are going to take a giant step back. And you're going to be like, yeah, I'm mad at Cody Bellinger while they clinch. There'll be the earliest team to ever clinch a playoff spot. And you'll still be mad about <laughs> Screaming it. Screaming at Cody Bellinger. That'll be great. All right. Coming up next, Jason Fitz joins the show. The man does not like pie or syrup on his pancakes. No clue why we're talking to him, but it is time for our weekly visit with ESPN's Jason Fitz. Good morning, Jason. How are you today? Hey, Jason. I am spectacular. How y'all doing? Good. All right. Here's an important question for you. Who in, we'll, we'll go the country music genre only. Who in the country music genre could walk up and slap the host of an award show and nobody do anything about it? 
Okay, so that would have to be somebody that's particularly jacked. So I would think McGraw might be able to get away with it, but even that's a little bit touchy. I will tell you guys, uh, and, I, and I may have told you this before, but I remember one year we opened the award show, uh, ACMs, and we decided it would be a good idea uh, to, uh, we had the opening performance, which, you know, that's the one you want, the most eyeballs, such a huge deal. And uh, some of the people in the band thought it would be a good idea at the end of the performance to drop confetti from the ceiling. And I said, for the record, I was like, I don't know if that's going to go over well, but I got outvoted. And so we finished our song, and at the end, all this confetti dumps down over the crowd. Looks so cool on TV. But the minute we got to commercial, what you realize, because it went straight to commercial right there, was that we had gotten confetti all over people that had spent tens of thousands of dollars on their hair and their outfit. Like, we had genuinely destroyed the look for certain celebrities. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple of different country artists that complained about having, uh, they had confetti in their boots. They were mad. And y'all, like, when you go backstage afterwards, you'll get some up yours sort of commentary from people. And people will loudly say what they say. I cannot imagine in that moment, like, Eric Church just walking up on stage and slapping the you-know-what out of me. Like, I just can't even fathom that happening. Uh, Jim, you to know about Trace Atkins. Could he get away with a slap or a punch? Oh, yeah, Trace could probably. But here's the thing. Like, Trace doesn't move particularly quickly at anything. So, like, you see that thing coming. So, it's like playing Mike Dyson's punch-out, like, in the early uh, early rounds where you can see it coming from a mile away. You duck that and just he'd fall over. So, you know, he might be able to get away with it. He just you, You'd be able to get out of the way of his slap. Is there anybody you would uh, most like to be slapped by? <laughs> um, that's a, that, that is in country music, you know what? Dolly Parton. If I could be slapped by Dolly Parton, just let her walk up on stage. Because the whole, like, that to me is like, now you're getting slapped by a legend. The, the biggest thing to me, too, y'all, like, is the fact that Chris Rock kept going. Like, yesterday I was doing radio, and I kicked my water. And I was watching the water. It was on the ground, topple over, and I thought it was going to spill everywhere and get water in the extension cords, which would kill my palate. I lost my cool for a solid three minutes on the radio trying to get my composure to figure out what was going on. I can't imagine a grown man walking up on stage slapping me and then just being able to brush that off and be like, hey, y'all, I just got slapped a superstar. Let's keep going with the Oscars. Like, that's a level of professionalism. I hope I never know. Bands or families, how, how often did you guys uh, get near a scuffle? Um, not often. I, you know, I think things don't get as heated on the road as you think nowadays. Like, there were a couple of times that I was touring with guys. There was one merch guy that was on our bus that uh, liked to every Sunday come in and root for whatever team was uh, going to agitate me the most as a Raiders fan. And there were a couple of times that I, I lost my coach. I'm not proud of it. But, you know, there were a lot, a, lot, a lot of F-bombs and a lot of yelling in the faces. But, you know, not, there's not a lot of arguments on the road. Like, I think country music particularly is such a big, like, we all cut our teeth together at the same time coming up. Like, you, you know everybody. You're buddies with everybody. That's real. It's really genuine. So I, I just don't think there's not that same level of, um, animosity. I, I will say this though. I was I was playing. I double dipped the Country Music Awards one year. I played for the Van Perry, but I also sat in with the Zach Brown Band. And I'll never forget. We were both nominated for Vocal Group of the Year. But I was in the Zach Brown Band dressing room because we were about to 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 perform. But my bosses obviously were the Van Perry, so I had to be rooting for the Van Perry. So I was in their locker room when they found out we won Vocal Group of the Year, which, by the way, we did not deserve. They were much better vocally than we ever would have been. And just watching Zach, like, go off for, like, 30 seconds about 
how political all that stuff is, terrible it all is, and then realize that I was room be one of the more uncomfortable moments of my mouth my life. But the problem is he was right. Like he he was just flat out right. Wait, okay. So you said backstage people have no problem like lighting people up. How often backstage in an award show do people do that? We're like, oh, they didn't deserve to win that award. How the hell did they not win? Oh yeah, that happens. Uh, that happens more than you think, especially because um, you know it, at the ACMs and the CMAs, ninety nine percent of the people are in one. Like all the men are in one dressing room, all the women are in another dressing room for most of it. You don't really get pulled out of that till right before your performance. So, like if you lose an award, if you lose Entertainer of the Year, you, you know you you might be backstage ten minutes later, two feet from the person that just beat you. And there's just a, there's a lot of competitiveness with that. But it's really like rather than be super like i hate you uh, what we like to do in country music is be more passive aggressive about it and just instead of trashing the artist trash the process so it's a really it's a really healthy thing to do a press box transition what's the sweet spot for Derek carr um oh yeah that is a tough transition i asked the other day um jeff darlington and because we were just talking about contracts in general and i said you know what 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 is the right price for Derek carr and in you know Jeff's a buddy, but in that moment he immediately said, "Man, I I think the problem, the hard part about this is nobody really knows." And he said, "You know, frankly, he asked me. He said, what do you think the sweet spot is?'" And I said, "I think thirty-five million a year feels right. Feels right. Like it's a three-year deal, thirty-five million a year. Most of it's fully guaranteed. Like that seems to make a lot of sense." But Darlington made a point that sort of changed my my logic on it. And he said, "What if what if Derek Carr is for all that we think he should do or might do?" Like, what if Derek Carr looks around and says, man, with these weapons, I'm going to bet on myself. What if he Kirk Cousins it and says, I'll play. I, I know nobody thinks he's going to play this year. But if he does and he has the year that we think he's going to have, he could be in line for $45, $50 million in a year. So the question is what Derek Carr thinks the sweet spot is. I think if the Raiders fan, if they signed him to a three-year deal that was an average of $35 million a year, I'd be doing cartwheels. If Derek Carr bets on himself and has a great season and the Raiders, let's say they win a win a playoff game or maybe even two, uh, is he outpricing himself for the Raiders? Like, is there a possibility that the Raiders wouldn't give him that $45, 50000000 million that he might get on the open market? 100%. But it's a win-win, I think, for everybody because Carr gets to get what whatever money he wants. Like, you know, and then the, the flip side of it is that the Raiders would be going into next year's draft class, which is much better quarterback, saying, okay, do we have the equity to get something? And, you know, maybe in that, that situation you use the fact that you can franchise him as a reason to franchise him, hold him, and trade him for equity, you know. So uh, I, there is absolutely zero doubt in my mind that if the Raiders had already wanted to move on from Derek Carr, they could have gotten at least one number one, I think two number ones from the more people I talked to, so they already elected not to get rid of him for draft picks. But if he has an epic year, it'll be worth even more next year. He's only he'll be thirty-two at that point, which is spring chicken for football. Has Deshaun Watson's guaranteed screwed everyone else? Like we were talking about earlier, Lamar Jackson has not signed yet, and maybe even Derek Carr walks in and says, "I'm not getting that much, but you're guaranteeing everything." If that guy's getting everything guaranteed. Yeah, that's, you are a thousand percent right, and that is the trickle down that I know the Ravens owner mentioned it yesterday, but I think the, the league changed with that Deshaun deal because the minute you did that much fully guaranteed for somebody that has that many issues, now all of a sudden you're looking around saying, oh my God. And yeah, every other quarterback is going to say, well, I want full guarantees. I think, I think we are on the precipice. I just wanted to use a big fancy word. 
of a, a world where we're going to have short-term, shorter contracts that are fully guaranteed for contract for quarterbacks. Why not bet on yourself every three or four years, but get all of it fully guaranteed? It works for the team. It works for the player. Uh, all right. I think this might be a dumb question or an obvious answer because of your past, but are you cheering for Coach K to win a title in his last year or lose in hilarious fashion in North Carolina? I, I, I As long as he loses, America wins. The, the problem is <laughs> if he decides that he's going to – he got so close, he just wants to run it back one more time. Oh, then what, what oh. really is going to make me sick about this, and like I, I will throw the network I love that I work for under the bus. If Coach K comes back and just decides he's going to run it back, they're going to make us run back all of these tributes all over again, even though we just did it. And that is going to be so disgusting. So, like, I, I will, the, the caveat here is if I had my choice, what I'd love to see is North Carolina just absolutely – demoralize Duke in a way that makes people decide they don't want to go there anymore and Duke can be irrelevant for the next 30 years. But <laughs> if, uh, if I have to make the choice between that and another year at Coach K, uh, take a championship if that's what it takes to get rid of it. <laughs> I am so glad you found a doomsday scenario worse than Coach K winning the title. That's, that's what I That's what years of fandom of teams that don't win a lot make you do this. Like a spiral in your own head. It's, it's what happens. There are so many answers to this question, but what bugs you the most about him? His arrogance? Um, you know, there's a, there's a level of his, his – this is weird to say it this way, but, like, he's not a particularly likable person in so many ways. And players that played for him like him so much that it feels like it became this own little cult on this side where it's like, if you don't like Duke, then you just don't get it. And I don't – like, I, I have such a hard time with that. Is sustained success is fine. Like, I, I, I don't hate sustained success. I'm envious of sustained success. Sustained success without relatability and likability, to me, is just obnoxious. If you're going to win that much and you're going to have that much at your feet, then at least look like you're happy about it and make sure that there's a joy that you're inclusive with. And it just Duke has never felt like that. It feels like you're either on the Duke train or that means you're an idiot and a hater. And I prefer to be the idiot and the hater. Okay, who at ESPN, who of your uh, coworkers there, like Jay Billis or Jay Williams or somebody, who is the worst about this whole Duke Colt thing that you're complaining about? Oh, Jay Will. Like, I had to apologize. Like, Jay Will and I are really close, and I had to apologize to him when we first started hanging out. I was like, man, I owe you an apology for all the things that I've said about you and Duke over the years. <laughs> and then I, I sat back and watched some Duke basketball with him, and I'm like, I no longer owe you an apology. You are as insufferable as I thought. Like, I love the guy. But the Duke thing is a flaw, not a strength. <laughs> well, he is Jason Fitz from ESPN. Jason, as always, we appreciate uh, it. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate you guys. Have a great week. Oh, so, man. There is Jason Fitz on uh, the terribleness that is Duke, I guess. He's, yeah, but – He's scarred though. Like he was cheering. He was a UNLV fan when they got when the undefeated right. season was ended by Coach K and Duke. So he's he's scarred. Yeah. Which I, I imagine the majority of people listening to our show are also scarred in that same way. All right, coming up next, we're gonna jump into this uh, new arena that might be coming to Vegas that could be the home of an NBA team. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. Some potentially big news in the Las Vegas sports scene this morning as the Oak View Group, headed up by Tim Lewecki, 
uh, has announced that they are buying a plot of land that is uh, by Blue Diamond and the 215 by the South Premium Outlet Malls, and they plan to build a $3 billion project that would include a casino and would also include a $1 billion arena with about 20,000 seats. Now, the location of this is the same area in which Major League Soccer's uh, Wes Edens is apparently looking at to build an MLS stadium. Also, a key detail here is that Mark Bedane, former Raiders president, has been involved as a consultant with the Oak View Group in terms of buying this land and building this arena. Uh, Ed, do you see this uh, as a, hey, this is going to lead to the NBA coming to Las Vegas and playing at this arena? You know, I'm going to agree with Vinny this morning that if one person would be in that realm, it'd be Lewicki, given his sports background. Um, I know for a fact that Oakview uh, also runs and operates um, the Kraken uh, Arena, I think the New Islanders Arena. So there's a huge sports background with Oakview Group. Um, so, yeah, I think Lewicki has a lot of juice when it comes to sports. And if, if uh, an NBA team would be open, I don't know if Las Vegas could do better to have a lead person trying to get the team. I also like the fact, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's a privately financed project, and you and I always like those. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. I know Mick Akers had a story in the Review Journal. I don't think there was Senate. anything about the cost here that was in there or who would be incurring the cost. But Well, it, it, it did say it plans to break ground on a privately financed project. Okay, okay. Then that would so be... So I like yeah, that. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, if it's, yeah, if it's privately financed. Now, the one caveat I'd put to that, and we've talked about this with an MLS stadium possibly going in this same empty plot of land. There's a big plot of land. There's space for both, by the way. But... The big caveat is if anything significant goes there, a casino, an arena, an MLS stadium, they're going to have to change the road structure because right now mm -hmm. you cannot get there from the I-15 without going in right. like a roundabout way. Like there's, there is an exit for Blue Diamond. You have to take for Blue Diamond, 215 East, 215 West, and Las Vegas Boulevard. There's one exit that goes to four different places. They would have to completely redo that which would end up costing some public money to do so. But right. building the Good actual point. thing, I guess you're right. It might end up being fully private uh, as far as paying for it. So here's my thought on it. It makes absolutely no sense for somebody to come into Vegas and build a 20,000-seat arena unless they know they are getting an NBA team because – we do not need another 20,000 seat arena in Las Vegas. Like that's that like Jackie's what, coming. That's like yeah, geez. like <laughs> if you look at Las Vegas right now, T-Mobile Arena exists. The Thomas and Mac exists. Hell, Michelob Ultra Arena at Mandalay Bay. I think they're like 12,000, but that exists. MGM Grand Garden Arena exists. They're building that new Sphere Arena uh close to the strip as well. We have plenty of arenas that hold in that 10 to 20,000 seat range. And then on top of that, we've got a bunch that are like right under 10,000, whether it's like the Orleans or the Cox Pavilion. And then hell, like this, like Caesars and Planet Hollywood, all these casinos have their own little venues for just concerts that hold, I don't know, three to 5,000. Like we have plenty of venues that hold 20,000 or less. There is no need in this city. And I can't imagine somebody looking at Las Vegas and saying, you know what? We're going to go compete with T-Mobile Arena for concerts and MGM Grand Garden Arena and Michelob Ultra Arena and Tom. Like, 
that that doesn't make any sense unless you know you're getting an NBA team or something of that caliber. So I know Tim Lewecki in the Review Journal this morning, he said uh, that we're under no belief, expectation, or direction today that the NBA coming to Vegas is imminent, right? So he's saying that it's not specifically for an NBA team. But to me, I can't, I can't imagine you build this arena in this city when there are four or five more closer to the strip than you would be and not have an NBA team coming. I mean, do you think it's a wink-wink agreement? Possibly. And like Lewecki, he worked, he used to work for um, AEG and, you know, Staples yeah. Center and all that. Like he's sure. done plenty that has been involved with the NBA. So it's it's not a guy coming out of nowhere I mean, who has no connections to yeah. the NBA. I'm sure there's got to be something there because again, it just, it, it, to me, I can't figure out the logic behind somebody deciding I'm going to compete with five other venues of the same size that are all closer to the strip than this would be. Yeah. I mean, and I forgot this, but he was president of the nuggets between 91 and 95. Yeah. So that is, you know, he's got huge NBA ties and I wouldn't be surprised also if there's been conversations like, look, we want to build this. We want to put it here. We want to make it an incredible NBA arena. Are we next in line? And maybe some positive reinforcement was brought back to him in that sense. Yeah. And that, that to me sounds realistic, right? Cause it's not, um, what was the guy's name that we made fun of? Jay Bloom. You remember Jay Bloom, the guy who had yes. like, Oh sure. I remember Jay Bloom. That, that who, who said um, his quote was, well, they say I'm a billionaire. So that guy, I don't think had any connections to the NBA. Tim Lewicki does like this guy has done a ton in terms of NBA connection. So I, that to me is where the most logical that that's the most logical thing here is that this guy has worked with the NBA in the past has worked in the NBA in the past has to have connections, has to have those relationships and you wouldn't come to Vegas and build this arena away from the strip and expect it to do. I mean, how do you, we have so many damn venues. Like you could count the ballpark in Summerlin. You could count the uh, new event center in Henderson. Like we have so many venues here that are in this size range that it would be stupid to be like, you know what we're going to do. We're going to compete with all of those with a billion dollar arena. That's just dumb. Unless you know, you're getting 41 NBA games a year. And then it makes a lot of sense to do it. So it makes a me, lot of sense. If he thinks he can absolutely get it. Right. The logical path here is that now, the other part of this, because I've seen this a lot on Twitter, is people saying, why build this when you could just put an NBA team in T-Mobile? T-Mobile Arena. Is ready to go. It all comes back to ownership of arena. The NBA wants their owners to own their own arenas. That right. way they control all the revenue from that arena. That's what they want. And if an NBA team went into T-Mobile Arena, they they would not the owner of the nba team unless it was mgm or bill foley the owner of the nba team would not have any revenue streams coming from t-mobile arena if tim lewecki builds this and oakview group is the owner of this arena and then they're the owner of the nba team they control the revenue streams and that's what the nba wants so that's why there would be a new arena for an nba team even though we have an arena that could house an nba team right now so I'm not as confident. We talked to Vinny Bonsignori earlier. He said he'd put all his all of his money on this. I'm He's not putting everything confident. on this, Vinny. I wouldn't say I'm that confident, but the logical path here is that the NBA is going to be playing in this arena because otherwise I yeah. I can't figure it out. I don't know why why you would do this if you were Tim Lewecki unless you knew you were getting the NBA to Vegas.